Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Nicholas Zakis. Nick, do you want to say hi? Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Now, uh, we've had you on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times, but for those that don't know who you are, do you want to give a brief introduction? Sure. Um, I'm probably best known for creating ESLint, the JavaScript linter. Uh, and I've also written a bunch of books about JavaScript. So uh, Understanding ECMAScript 6 and Principles of Object-Oriented JavaScript are the two most recent ones. Nice. And we had you on, just so people can find them, episode 336, where we talked about the origin of ESLint, and episode 75, where we talked about maintainable JavaScript. So yeah, so anyway, this episode is about kind of getting people to know your story, you know, where you came from, where you're at, all that kind of thing. And so let's let's go way back and talk about how you got into programming. Yeah, I think first program I ever wrote was in BASIC, and that was on a laser computer, which was a cheaper knockoff version of the Apple IIe. Uh-huh. And I had first... I think I first discovered it one time when I booted up the computer without a disk in it, which for those computers didn't have a hard drive. So you had to put a disk in it to start up into something. Uh, and I started it up without a disk in it. And I saw a little prompt on the screen and was really curious about what that was. Uh, and it turned out that you could start writing basic in there. So my dad, I believe, had actually taken a course on BASIC, so he had some materials still hanging around. Uh, and so I read through those and just started with some basic things like printing out messages to myself that I found very amusing. And I really got very into BASIC. And I think I was maybe in middle school at that time. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, by the time I had gotten into high school, I had written just a couple of really simple programs that did useful things to the point where in geometry class in high school, you know, we had to do some project. I can't quite remember what it was, but I do remember approaching my teacher and asking if I could uh, do it as a computer program instead. Uh, and it was just a really simple program that you would put in some coordinates and it would draw geometric shapes on the screen. And she said, sure. And uh, that was the, the first time I think anybody else had ever used one of my programs. And I was bitten by the bug at that point. And mm -hmm. it was onward and upward from there. Very interesting. So was it all in basic then? Or did you do like Pascal or some other language to do some of that? Or uh, At that point in time, it was just basic. Okay. And then uh, I sort of 
transitioned when we got our first Windows PC uh, mm -hmm. into writing batch files, which were very similar to the basic that I had been writing before. Right. Um, and then from that, I wanted to start creating Windows applications. So I went into Visual Basic because that seemed like, hey, I already knew Basic, and that would just be a nice, nice way to get into more visual stuff. Uh, and of course, as it turns out, Visual Basic had basically nothing to do with uh, <laughs> what I was using before. So that became my next language of choice. And then it wasn't until college where I ended up needing to learn languages like Pascal and C and C++. Right. Well, it has basic in it. It's kind of like the argument you get with JavaScript and Java. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that. They have the same amount of relationship with each other. Yep. Interesting. So, so how did you get to the point where you were doing JavaScript? Well, it was in college. And to place that was 1996 was my freshman year. And at the time, uh, Netscape 3 had really gained in popularity and consumers were starting to be more exposed to the web. Uh, mm -hmm. And I had decided that I wanted to set up a web page. Uh, basically to keep in touch with high school friends who are all going in different directions. Uh, right. And I did the typical, you know, I started out with a, a web page on my AOL space, uh, which was members.aol.com slash slicknet, which of course is my Twitter username now where I came from. And then, you know, moved on to GeoCities and kind of explored around. And I very quickly was annoyed uh, at how static the pages seem. It seemed like they should be able to do more. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm pretty sure my first exposure to JavaScript when I was trying to make a hover effect for an image, because at the time there was no CSS and just about the only thing that you could change on a web page dynamically was the source of an image. And typically, what you do is you would have an image that was for something to click on. Uh, and then when you move the mouse over it, you would change that to a, a slightly different image. So it would give it the appearance of uh, a highlight of some sort. Oh, uh, gotcha. And the only way you could do that was with JavaScript. And uh, these are the early days of JavaScript. So for a point of reference, the array type didn't yet exist in JavaScript. So it was very, very early on, pre-ECMAScript 1. And what you had to do was you would put the image tag inside of an A tag. And on the A tag, it couldn't be on the image tag. Uh, on the A tag, you could do on mouse over equals and then do document.images, either the name of your image or the index of that image in the document, dot source equals the other image that you want to swap it to. And then you could do on mouse out the reverse. And that was the first bit of JavaScript that I wrote for my web page. And from there, I started exploring more to figure out what else I could do. And I think the next exciting thing I did was I learned how to print out the current date on the page when the page was loaded. Uh, and that was just a, a document dot write and a new date to string. Sort of thing. But to me, this was 
just amazing that I could have something pop up every time the page was loaded with a different date that was like magic to me. <laughs> nice. And that that really got me hooked on JavaScript and starting to explore like what else I could do with it. That's cool. That's really cool. So you you get into JavaScript. You, you're doing you know some interesting things with it. At, at what point did you you know where you, you became a prolific JavaScript developer and author? I mean, you, you kind of did both. Yeah, I don't want to give anybody the idea that it was an overnight thing because it definitely took quite a bit of time to get to that point, point. Uh, and it really was just fueled by my own curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like a lot of that was just in college, it, the web was so new that we didn't have any classes on it. And so the only way to really learn about it was on your own to explore, play with things, to search out references online. Um, I probably killed a few trees uh, while I was at college by using the computer lab to just print out all <laughs> kinds of articles and things about HTML and JavaScript. And of course, when Internet Explorer 3 came out and the browser wars really started, you had to print out both stuff for Netscape and stuff for Internet Explorer to be able to figure out how to make stuff work in both. And you know, at college, I was one of the only students who actually knew anything about web development. So the professors would actually come to me to ask them to show them, you know, like how to set up a <laughs> first department website and like how to create animation on a page. And I sort of took a detour into Java applets for a while before I decided that was too much work and, and came back into JavaScript. And uh, by the time I was graduating college, I knew that I wanted to work on web stuff. Like everything else that I had learned was fine, but the thing that excited me the most was the web. Right. And I was lucky enough to get a first job out of college without really interviewing. Kind of a funny story is that my babysitter when I was little ended up becoming the uh, head of HR at the startup. And she and my parents had stayed in touch. And she basically just hired me without any interview whatsoever to work at this startup as a webmaster which I don't think is a title that exists anymore today. <laughs> I was going to uh, say. <laughs> and probably good. And if you're going to ask, like, well, what did the job entail? I can't really tell you because I thought it was going to be like managing the company website. And then when I got there, the person I was reporting to was like, no, you're not actually going to do that. And which was frustrating when I first started because that's what I thought I was going to be doing. But what happened was, between the time they hired me and the time that I started, they hired this new person to be the head of UI for the company. And then they slid me to report under him. And he wanted experienced designer to deal with the website. Uh, and so what he decided to give me to do instead was to help him with these UI prototypes for the web app that the company was working on. And the first task that he gave me was to create an expandable, collapsible tree widget, which we all know from like Windows Explorer and right. whatnot. And uh, you know, at the time, the style was it had like all the lines that were connecting different things. And um, he came from a design background and not a 
programming background and he just couldn't quite figure out how to get the expanding and collapsing work. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. I'll go off and figure it out. And I just got so deep into JavaScript and browsers and all of the technologies at the time it was IE4 and Netscape 4 and uh, how to make this work across browsers. And I, I think it took me about a week and I came back and I had this full demo where, you know, with the JavaScript API, you could add as many nodes as you wanted into the tree and it would expand and collapse at every level. And you could go you know, N levels deep, it didn't matter. And mm -hmm. all of the lines would line up correctly. And he was just blown away by that, as was I, because I'd never done anything like that before. And basically from that point on, I became the uh, UI guy. And even though initially my job was just to create the prototypes, when I would hand those off to the people who were building the web app, they couldn't figure out how to recreate what I had done. <laughs> so then it became like, okay, you're going to prototype it, but it also has to be usable in the web application proper. Just you have to be able to drop it right in. Right. Uh, and so that's when I got more into designing JavaScript APIs. And shortly after that, uh, about eight months after that point, the company went under. And so eight months after graduating from college, I was unemployed. And found myself with a little extra time on my hands and I was a little bit worried that I would forget the cool stuff that I had written and, and developed there. Uh, mm -hmm. So I started just going back over the code and writing for myself how I had constructed it. So, you know, I would start out with, this was my goal here, create an expandable collapsible tree. Mm -hmm. and then this was the design process that I went through. And this was the HTML that I came up with to lay it out. And this is the API that I came up with to allow you to insert and remove nodes. And this is how I went about implementing it. Uh, and it really was just for my own benefit. And at some point, I was on a discussion with some of my now former colleagues and I had just kind of mentioned, oh yeah, remember that JavaScript tree thing that I wrote? Well, I wrote up this description of how I did it in case any of you have to do it you know, anywhere you end up. And somebody replied and said, hey, this is really good. You should think about getting this published somewhere. And I thought, huh, well, that's <laughs> I guess I could do that. And I started going online and looking for websites that were publishing articles about JavaScript and web development and stuff like that. And I ended up submitting that article to one of them. I can't remember if it was DevX or Web Reference. Uh, I did end up writing articles for both of them. I just can't remember which one was first. Mm -hmm. But it ended up getting published. Uh, and I got a lot of good feedback from random people on the internet from it. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. I can 
I can do something to help me and it's actually understandable for other people. Right. Uh, and so from that point, I would just periodically write articles online about random things that I had figured out how to do. I wrote a few for uh, DevX and wrote several more for web reference. And as I was at my next job, which was a job that I really hated, but I had a lot of freedom to kind of explore and self-direct. And so as I was continuing to, um, this was another job where I was primarily prototyping dynamic UIs uh, that then turned into, well, you also have to make it work for the actual web app because nobody else could figure out how to do it. And by doing that and continuing to flex the muscles of working in both IE4 and Netscape 4 uh, and digging even deeper, uh, I just kept coming up with new and interesting things that I was learning about JavaScript uh, that I then would prototype stuff up and then I would write articles and publish those. And then the next big step after that was I was reading web reference one day uh, and they had written an article about another author who had written a bunch of articles for web reference who had decided to compile those articles together and publish a book. And it was an aha moment for me because I went, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that a book is just a collection of articles? I can do that. <laughs> and so I just set my goal to write a book about JavaScript because at the time there weren't that many books about JavaScript. I'm pretty sure I owned all of them. And I felt like I had gone past what was covered in those books. And I wanted to write a book that would fill in that next step that was missing in those books at the time. And I didn't have any other ideas about what that book would be aside from that. Uh, what I decided to do was just to start writing whatever seemed interesting to me. And when I had enough content, I would take a step back and look at it all and try to figure out what the book would be. Mm -hmm. uh, but that really was the beginning of that whole path for me. That's awesome. And, and I love, you make it sound like you were just kind of doing your thing and then it was like, oh, you can turn this into a book. And yeah, that's exactly what it was. It's one of those... I, I always tell people that in my life, there was very little that I had planned out ahead of time. Uh, almost anything interesting that happened to me happened by accident because I was just kind of stumbling along in life. And this thing sort of fell in my path. And I was like, okay, well, let's try that. I guess it's worked out pretty well. That's kind of how I feel about podcasting. I <laughs> just kept doing, yeah. And then things, you know, oh, well, this kind of fell into my lap. So I'll do that. And then, yeah. So you've written the book, you built ES Lint. And if people want to get that story, it's on that episode of JavaScript Jabber. I don't think we're going to rehash it here because I want to spend our time on other things. W what else have you done or worked on that you're particularly excited about or proud of? Well, as usual, there, there's been a sort of progression of things that have fallen into my lap that I've really enjoyed. In 2006, 
I ended up at Yahoo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started on the My Yahoo team, which, in case people are unfamiliar with it, uh, was a customizable portal. So really kind of spurred on by the beginnings of RSS. So you could add you know, RSS feeds as little widgets on your page and get all of your news in one place. Uh, and by the time I had gotten to Yahoo, the idea was to rebuild it into a more dynamic interface to take advantage of all of the new technologies that were in browsers. So uh, Ajax was the hot balls word at the time. We mm -hmm. were able to make these requests back to the server without needing to reload the entire page. And that was the first time that I had been exposed to a just massive amount of JavaScript in a single web application. Because everything I had worked on up to that point, there was JavaScript mostly to fill in some of the gaps in functionality, mm -hmm. but it wasn't the focus of the functionality. Yeah, I, I did that expandable collapsible tree, but that was a pain on the left. And then you clicked on it, it just loaded a regular HTML page on the right that had right. no JavaScript on it. And when I worked at Vistaprint after that, once again, it was, there was JavaScript on the page, but it was for creating drop-down menus or hover effects or things like that. Uh, and when I got to Yahoo to see that Basically, the JavaScript code was dwarfing the backend code in a lot of ways that uh, I really got exposed to just building these large JavaScript applications uh, and all of the complexities that came along with it. Uh, and that was also the first job I had where it was completely front-end focused. So I didn't have to worry about working on any of the server-side stuff to pull in data. I didn't have to worry about databases. I didn't have to worry about web servers, any of that stuff. It was the, the first place where I could just be a front-end engineer. And that was great because I could work together with the back-end engineers and come up with our API contract. This is the data that I need for the front-end. Uh, and that person could go and figure out how to get that data. And I could go and just assume the data was there and start building the UI without needing to wait for the API to be completely finished on the back end. Right. And a lot of the material that you find in my books and then in the talks that I started doing at Yahoo around best practices really came from that time when I was working on my Yahoo and trying to figure out you know, how this team of, I think we had like five or six front-end engineers could all work together without stomping on each other and breaking each other's stuff. Because at that time, we're talking about like, nobody was really doing JavaScript unit testing. Nobody was really doing any sort of in-depth linting. Uh -huh. uh, everybody was just creating global variables whenever they wanted. People were just changing things whenever they felt like it. In fact, one of the first talks that I gave was called Maintainable JavaScript. And I think that was like 2007, maybe 2008. And what's, what prompted me to put that together was 
all of the mistakes we had made as a team building my Yahoo, where we just kept getting in each other's way and sort of became a list of these are all the things we should never do. And I think the most popular one from that talk was don't modify objects you don't own, mm -hmm. which was like, you know, don't add stuff to prototypes, don't overwrite methods on objects that you didn't create. And that came from a discovery where somebody had overwritten the YUI stop event method because in their little part of the application, they wanted to do something slightly different uh, without realizing that because that is a global object, uh, well, the Yahoo object was global and this method was on it, that everybody was using it and that that behavior might not be appropriate for every place else in the application that was using it. And it took us like two or three days to figure out that that's what happened. And so that became one of our rules is just don't modify any objects that you don't own. Mm -hmm. And then the other things in that talk also came from similar problems that we had had uh, working on that uh, application together. And somehow it all came together without any unit testing or any real build process whatsoever to govern the JavaScript files. I think later on we ended up adding in some JS lint checking, um, but that was pretty much it. And getting to ship that final version of my Yahoo was a pretty big highlight for me because you know, it was the, the first just big collaborative effort that I had ever had with a bunch of other front-end engineers that went out in front of millions of people and actually worked. It was pretty exciting. That's awesome. Now, one thing I want to touch on before we run out of time, if you're okay with it, is just to talk about some of your health issues. I know that people, you know, they, they run into things that helpful for people to realize that, you know, things don't always go their way. But at the same time, you know, you've been able to come back on the show. It seems like you've been able to participate in the community some, but you also had to take some time off for it. Yeah, there's no problem talking about it because I think it's something that is really important for people to understand because especially you know i live in silicon valley which in in some ways is great there's a lot of energy there's a lot of excitement there's a lot of ideas and people are really driven and uh, motivated to try things uh, and that's great but the other side of that is that it does take a physical toll on your body and if you're not listening to your body about that, the problems can just snowball. Mm -hmm. So for me, my story is a little bit complicated because it's, it's took place over so many years, but basically, and this is a story that me, my family and my doctors have sort of pieced together over the years as we've learned more. But basically when I was in college, I contracted Lyme disease and that is a bacterial infection that you get from getting bitten by a tick. And sometimes when that happens, you see what they call a bullseye rash on your skin. Uh, and if you look that up online, you'll see it actually looks like a bullseye where there's a red center and then kind of a, a white circle around there and then a red center. And it can, 
It can be small, it can be big. And that's basically the only way that you can know immediately that you've contracted Lyme disease because it causes that bullseye rash. Uh, but if you don't get the rash or it's in a place that you don't look at very frequently, the bottom of your foot, it can go unchecked. And that's what happened to me was in college, I literally was fine one night when I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I couldn't get out of bed. I had flu-like symptoms, a lot of body aches, headaches, nausea, and we just figured that I had got the flu. And so, you know, fluids and chicken soup and, and stuff like that. But it just dragged on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, for months, I was barely eating anything, barely able to get up off the couch. And eventually, you know, I did end up in the ER a couple of times and they couldn't find anything and, and sent me home. And eventually, when nobody could find anything wrong, I ended up uh, at a holistic doctor who surmised that I had a bunch of food allergies and so put me on a very strict diet. And somehow I ended up better enough to get back to school um, and get back to life and eventually had built myself up to where I was living a mostly normal life. Like it was something where we all just said, well, that was a weird thing that happened to you once and went on with my life. But I would have these kind of relapsing, remitting periods uh, of those same symptoms where all of a sudden I would just get really sick and like be in bed for a week or two. And then I would get up and be okay for two or three months and that would happen again. And no doctor could figure out what it was. And so I just kind of went on and, you know, I lived my life as best as I could But as I got into my late 20s, I started having bouts of fatigue where I just found I couldn't do a lot of things anymore. I wasn't able to exercise as much. I was sleeping a lot and I didn't really feel like going out and doing too much. Mm -hmm. But at that point, my life was pretty tame. So that didn't matter too much. I mean, I... You know, I went to work, I had a girlfriend, I you know, was doing some writing. I was never a really big extrovert or adventurous person. So I was like, eh, it's fine. No big deal. When I moved to California in 2006, I started getting a lot worse. And at the time, I wasn't entirely sure, but I figured the stress of the move was a big reason why that happened. I started losing weight, just kind of, I'd say uncontrollably, but not all at once. Like it was a very slow drip Mm -hmm. and I had less and less energy. And at the time I was, I had a a lot of trouble adjusting because all of my family is back in Massachusetts. I didn't know anybody in California. So I also went through a lot of depression and anxiety and my health just really started getting worse at that point. Uh, But again, like I was functional enough, uh, but I was at the point where the only real things that I was doing 
were work work related. Uh, and then I spent a lot of time going to doctors trying to figure out what was wrong. And then finally, about five years ago, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And you know, I was able to look back at everything that had happened and had seen this was really just the progression of the disease. Um, and by that point, I was having cognitive problems uh, in addition to the energy and digestive problems and the flu-like symptoms. Mm-hmm. The, the periods of remission in between the relapses had basically shrunk down to nothing. So the symptoms were constant. And you know, I'd been to so many doctors who had said, it's probably in your head, you know, you're just depressed. And so I had just kept pushing through and pushing through and trying to do more, figuring, you know, if I could just achieve more, that would flip a switch in my brain that you see you're not sick because you're doing all of this stuff. So right. you should just stop being sick now. Of course, that was the opposite of what my body needed. My body really needed more rest. And then about four years ago, I just stopped being able to leave my house. And I just, I didn't have the energy. I didn't feel like it was safe for me to drive. I, I could pull myself to a computer for some hours during the day to do, to work from home a bit. Right. But then I had to be laying down. And, you know, I tried to hold on to that for two years. And finally, I just got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. Everything that I was doing was just so much effort and so much of the little energy that I had that I just made the difficult decision that I just had to stop working altogether. Because really at that point, I I think that Box, where I was working, I think they were being uh, overly generous with my situation. I didn't feel like I was contributing much. I didn't feel like I was making situations better when I was involved in them. I felt like I was making them worse. And, you know, they, they were very kind about giving me as much support as I needed, but the type of support that I needed at that point was just overwhelming. So I decided to stop working and just focus full time on my health. And that was probably the best decision that I've made in over a decade. Now, I still am not well enough to be working even part time. I just, you know, I'm just getting to the point now where I can have conversations of this length with people and being able right. to do things like going and uh, visiting with my parents. So I've still got a ways to go, but I definitely wouldn't have gotten as far as I have uh, if I had had the additional stress of needing to continue working. Right. So I really feel like it's uh, this is a good opportunity for me to just remind everybody that you know, without your health, you really don't have anything else. So if you need to take the time to focus on that and slow down and get it under control, please do it because it's really worth it. Yeah, makes sense. And I was going to ask what you hope people take from it. And I think that's it is you know, take care of yourself. And if you need to take a break or slow down, or like you said, you know, make sure that you do it. Yeah. And it's, it's great to achieve things with code, but it's also nice to be able to spend time with friends and enjoy your family and explore other hobbies and 
you know, anything you can do to de-stress. Mm-hmm. I think that because our work is very cognitive, that we don't often equate it with exhausting and draining our bodies. Uh, but cognitive work is very draining. It does require a lot of energy. I mean, anybody who has a newborn and hasn't been able to sleep in several weeks knows that, that when you're tired, you're not getting enough sleep, your brain is just not functioning that well because you don't have the energy to do all the things that your brain needs to do to be able to think clearly. And as software engineers, we are so in our heads so much of the time, just burning up all of this energy doing that, that taking the time to do uh, what I like to call nonsense things is Mm -hmm. a great uh, relief for your brain because it can relax. You know, things like uh, I'm a really big fan now of just coloring. Um, they have these adult coloring books that have these complex geometric patterns. And I just, you know, take some time and grab some colored pencils and I just color. And it's amazing how your mind just relaxed when you're doing something that you, you need to focus on just a tiny bit, but not a lot. And it's something that I've been recommending to all of my friends and family to just you know, and even I find just 10 or 15 minutes alone is enough to get me really relaxed and chilled out. But, you yeah. know, going for a walk is another just really simple thing you can do to just kind of get your brain out of that habit of trying to uh, problem solve. And it actually causes your whole body to just relax. Yeah, I go for a drive up the canyon by my house. Yeah, beautiful scenery is just yep. uh, unbelievably relaxing. Yeah, there's plenty of that out here in Utah. But yeah, whatever it takes. And I mean, sometimes it's burnout and sometimes it's something like what you're talking about with Lyme disease. But we all just need to make that a focus and take care of ourselves. Yeah, and the uh, the thing that I always like to tell people is that if you've been forgetting to take care of your body long enough, your body will make it so it can't be ignored anymore. Yep. So, yeah, I, I know a few people that have you know, they're, they're like a 20 something person. They've, you know, just been, uh, drinking Red Bulls and working late and pushing it too hard. And they wind up in the hospital with pneumonia and you're like pneumonia. That's like what 80 year olds get. And it's, it's also what you get if you just beat the crap out of your body. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mentioned it on JavaScript Jabber as well, but I think it's worth reiterating here that, you know, when you're in any sort of stressful situation and trying to constantly solve these complex technical problems is a stressful situation. Your body goes into the, the fight or flight mode. Uh, yeah. And when that happens, your immunity shuts off, your digestion shuts off, all of the blood flows away from your organs and into your extremities so you can uh, you know, either run away or fight someone off to survive. Uh, and when your body stays in that state for too long, it opens you up to all kinds of diseases, pneumonia, things that your body is actually capable of fighting off on its own, but you just haven't allowed it to get into that resting and relaxing state where it can build back up the immunity. I actually just read a book that said that people with newborns get sick all the time and they think that it's because the newborns attract 
all of these viruses and bacteria and whatnot. Uh, but actually, it's because the parents aren't sleeping enough. And it's during sleep that mm -hmm. your body rebuilds your immunity and starts creating, uh, you know, your T cells and stuff like that, that allow you to fight off those diseases. So you know, I think that we've been brought up to believe like, oh, we had a cold because you picked up a virus somewhere. And that's not actually true because you're picking up viruses and bacteria every day, everywhere you are. Um, but your immune system, when it's strong, will just fight them off and you won't get a cold. Um, yep. But if the symptoms actually show up, it's because your immunity is low enough that that virus is like, cool, I can go to work now. And uh, that's really, you know, getting a cold is really a sign that you need more rest and relaxation because you need to rebuild your immunity again. Yep. Now I'm going to, I'm going to head us off here because I've got another call scheduled. Um, but this has been really fascinating and I really hope that people take this to heart because uh, a lot of times we just get stuck in the, you know, the push, 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 push. And you know what? It's okay to stop and take care of yourself. Let's go ahead and do some picks. Yeah, you have some things it. you want to shout out about? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, so at the moment, I'm reading this amazing book. It's called The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. And it's a pretty big book. It's about 800 pages, but it's really well written. And it's basically about um, how we think today because of you know, guns and wars and stuff like that, that you know, we're just getting more violent as a people over time. Uh, but actually, we're not. And we're living in perhaps the most peaceful time in the history of civilization. And the book goes through and sort of starts with the Neanderthals and sort of describes how we as human beings are developing more and more ways to avoid violent conflict. Uh, so it kind of goes through, you know, how truly horrible we used to be to each other and how if you look back comparing now to like medieval times, it's a night and day difference, no pun intended, of how we treat each other in civilization. And I think it's one of those books that, especially with today's climate, uh, it's nice to be reminded that, you know, as 
humanity goes on, we actually do become kinder, more civil, and better to each other. And, you know, it doesn't always happen overnight, but over the long run, we're heading in a really positive direction. And I think that that's a great message to share with everybody. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. My second pick is actually something that we talked about briefly, but just these adult coloring books. If you're just looking for a quick way to de-stress, even if it's for 10 or 15 minutes, they're super cheap. You can buy them you know, for $5 on Amazon and just get some markers or crayons or colored pencils or you know, whatever you would prefer. And just try to sit down periodically and color. As I mentioned earlier, I've just been amazed at the difference that I've seen uh, when I've done it. So uh, I think it's really a great thing for everybody to do. Uh, awesome. So those are my two picks. So I, I get these wall calendars. And by wall, I mean it takes up half of my wall calendar. Uh, they're six foot by three foot. But they're a full year calendar. And it's just really nice to be able to visualize the whole year on them. And I get them from newyear.com. It's N-E-U-Y-E-A-R. And uh, yeah, it's like 40 or 50 bucks, but well worth it for me to be able to plan out my year. So I just got my 2019 calendar. We're recording this in early November. So yeah, anyway, um, looking forward to planning out the next year. And, and that's the tool that I use. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for coming, Nicholas. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Yeah, no problem. We'll uh, wrap this up and we will catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.